Thank you so much for joining us this evening for what, for thousands of years now, the church has commemorated and celebrated by calling it Good Friday. Although at the time, not much about it felt very good. There is God. There are people, but there's sin, and so there's judgment. There is God, and there's people, but there's sin, and so there's judgment. There is God. There are people sin. And so there's judgment. Our Bibles have 66 inspired books in this combined canon of Scripture. And every one of those books in some way is telling that cycle of life, of death, separation, and the bridge of the breach that is redemption. There is God. There is people. But then there is sin, and so there is judgment. It's the pattern of all of the books of our Bible. And sin is a very big deal. In fact, the Bible will say repeatedly that the wages of sin, what sin produces, what sin always, always manifests is death. And so there is darkness and dread and death. Death is separation. Increasingly, life in our culture and our context can take on sort of a, a shadowy texture. It can feel gloomy. It can feel glum. Much, perhaps you've noticed, if not all of the news that we hear in the main and in the macro is bad because it, it connects with a certain fear that we all carry. Something has gone horribly wrong, and it seems to be getting much, much worse as days begin to grow into long long shadows. Well, we're gathered together this evening because of the shadows that really do exist. Because there's God, there was people, but then entered in sin. And it's a really big deal. And so there is judgment. This evening is historically what's been referred to as a tenebrae. Tenebrae is a Latin term. It means shadows. It's to say what this is really all about. It's to commemorate the emotion and the passion of Christ. Frequently at this campus, we will define passion not as merely an intense emotion or a longing or a desire. Passion is the extent you are willing to go to accomplish your goal, no matter what it costs. And so in this tenebrae, this service of shadows, we're here to discuss and to consider this Jesus, this man that we gather to commemorate, came to conquer a curse with his corpse. Because the curse, you see, is found all over the cosmos. That's how big of a deal sin is. As much as we want to emphasize Christ's deity, his divinity, his godness. We cannot and we must not minimize his humanity. His suffering and anguish was absolutely immense, 
And those closest to him, they experienced devastation as they watched what happened to him unfold. We are going to look at the Gospel of Matthew here in a moment. And as Matthew writes out this story, we could kind of refer to these last three chapters of his Gospel account as a long walk to an empty tomb. Just this past Sunday, a few days ago, we said that we were sort of in a documentary in the last few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And a documentary is wonderfully poised and positioned and postured to make you enter in and ask yourself the question, perhaps subconsciously, perhaps intuitively, how would I react in that circumstance? How would I react in that context? How would I react in that situation? And last Sunday, we looked at a man named Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and he actually asks the question, what shall I do with Jesus? And ultimately, it is the question that is posed to billions and billions of people. What shall you do with Jesus? And we are not granted the latitude to procrastinate. That's the question. Well, we're going to continue studying this documentary and the life and the passion of Christ. Tonight, perhaps even as we walked in, the weather has been sort of dark, even gloomy. Perhaps the mood has been as well. And sometimes we're even uncomfortable with the horror of injustice perpetrated against an innocent that Chris even already mentioned and discussed. We have to come to terms with the reality of that last song that we sang together, that it should have been me. It should have been you. It should have been us. That's sort of the crux of our conversion. That's the, the centrality of our confession. It should have been me, but another died innocently in place of the wicked. Tonight, we're going to continue this documentary of sorts of Holy Week, looking at another central participant in the narrative. So I'm going to invite you, if you've got a Bible, very efficiently and briefly to go to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to read very efficiently through verses 32 through 50. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 32. Jesus has already gone through six trials, three religious trials, three civic trials. He has gone six and oh. He is undefeated. Three religious trials declared him innocent. Three civic trials declared him innocent. And yet the process continues. He's arrested. He's scourged, not flogged. He is scourged. Matthew writes it this way. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene. Simon by name. Cyrene is in North Africa. He's a pilgrim. He's come to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. He just happens to be observing all of the tumult, all of the goings-on. They, the Romans, uh, the term here is they compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. It wasn't a request. They put this beam on his shoulders and told him to start walking. Verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. You see, Matthew's writing to people who may not understand Aramaic as a tongue. Which means place of a skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. It was intended to be a little bit of an anesthetic to sort of numb the anguish and the pain that he was about to endure. But he would not take it. He needed all of his faculties. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. And that's it. That's all we get. The Gospel of Matthew is 18,000 words. We get about a sentence to talk about his death. 
You've got Matthew, who was a tax collector, who's really gifted at records and numeric annotations and the like, who spends an enormous amount of time discussing the birth of Jesus, his genealogy, his lineage, his heritage, to declare that Jesus is the rightful king of the line of David. You get chapters on that. You get one sentence about his crucifixion. That's instructive. Verse 36. And they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, all of the leadership of the nation, mocked him, saying, he saved others. No argument of his power, of his providence. He saved others, which he had, and they could not argue with that. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That's in Aramaic, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first time in the gospel accounts that Jesus does not refer to God as Abba, as Father. He now uses the judicial title of God as judge. See, there's God, and there's people, but there's sin, and so there must be judgment. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with some sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He was not murdered. He died. Submissively, subserviently, substitutionarily of his own will. So interesting, 18,000 words in this gospel, and all we get is one sentence about his death. The gospel writers all record his death this way. Very efficiently. They were not trying to produce some emotional, evocative thing that would make us gasp for air. Everybody in that part of the world in that day and age knew precisely what crucifixion was. They weren't trying to hide it either. Everybody understood the horror of what it was to be executed by this occupying, invading power called the Roman Empire. They just didn't describe it, the gospel writers, in excruciating detail because they didn't have to. In other words, they're not simply trying to hook our hearts. They're trying to get us to understand the significance and the severity of this substitutionary act. They're trying to also produce an intellectual awareness that changes our minds about God, about Jesus, and about ourselves. Christ's suffering was, like, was unlike anything we could possibly imagine or conceive. For three hours, we're told of the humiliating anguish at the hands of men. But for three hours, we're also told that he suffered at the hands of God. There are these great, grand, old, deep theological terms 
called the dereliction that already in the garden of Gethsemane as Jesus stops to pray, not once, not twice, but three times, and he begins to sweat as though it was drops of blood, that the dereliction, the punishment poured out by the Father has already begun. He's referred to by some of the church fathers as the immolation. That sacrifice that is offered up and that is consumed completely. Three hours at the hand of Man, three hours at the hand of God. He yielded up. He gave up his own life. His work was perfectly complete. It was finished. Why is Matthew so brief in his description? Because he doesn't want us to know so much the what happened. He wants us to understand why what happened happened. And for that, very, very briefly, we need to peer into this documentarian's lens, and we need to go back one paragraph. So if you've still got your Bibles, Matthew 27, go back to verse 15. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 15. Last week we looked at Pilate. This evening we want to very briefly look through the lens at a man named Barabbas. Verse 15, now at the feast of the Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. They had, them, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. She texted him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. Earlier the Jews had spoken with Pilate and said, we want this man to be crucified. And Pilate said, Why? I find no evil in him. What has he done? They said, oh, he's an insurrectionist. He's a seditionist. He's a traitor. Pilate says, oh, a traitor. Is that what you want? A seditionist. Is that what you want? A murderer. Is that what you want? Because you're so loyal to Rome. Is that right? And they said, yes, that's right. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate says, well, I have something for you. I have a man in my dungeon named Barabbas who is a known traitor, insurrectionist, murderer. Let's see how loyal to Rome you really are. So he fetches Barabbas. Who do you want me to release? The insurrectionist or this one in whom I find no evil whatsoever? Who is innocent? They cry out, give us Jesus to be crucified. Why? What do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The name Barabbas is for us. This is Matthew's mechanism for drawing us into the story. The name Barabbas means son of the father. This is where we watch the documentary and we put ourselves in the narrative and we think, how would I react? How would I respond? What would I do in that situation? Now, the text is actually fairly brief, but I want you to remember that these narratives of the Gospels are continuations of Old Testament-style narrative where they are primarily and predominantly oral tradition that is handed down father to household, oral tradition handed down in churches for decades and decades before Matthew ever writes it down, before Mark or Luke or John ever write it down. It was oral tradition. So I want to give you the picture on this tenebrae service, on this Good Friday, of what's going on with Barabbas. Barabbas is in a dungeon. He's awaiting his doom. 
He is awaiting execution. He is not awaiting trial. He is guilty as sin. He knows it. Everybody knows it. He knows the gruesome horrors that are awaiting him. He knows all too well about crucifixions. There is no resistance. The only question he's asking at this point as he sits rotting in a cell is, when? But then I want you to imagine the story narratively. I'm not adding to the text. I just want you to imagine if this story is being told narratively in a church, in a household 2,000 years ago before Matthew writes it down. The story goes that Matthew tells it orally. And that Barabbas is in his jail, and he's talking to some of the other prisoners, some of whom are rabble-rousers, some of whom are perhaps falsely accused, we don't know. But they begin to hear through that little portal in the cell wall, Roman soldiers chinking out, carving out three different holes in the rock where vertical beams are being erected. And they know, oh, there's going to be three crucifixions in the morning. They know exactly what's going to happen. At any given moment around Jerusalem, there was always outside the camp some enemy of Rome who was being executed. The hours-long process of dislocated shoulders, of suffocation, of nerves exploding in volcanic pain, of spikes tearing through flesh. He knew what was coming. <laughs> and, and the bravado of being a rebel against Rome, that was now long since past. There was no escape. It'll be very soon. But then as he's hearing the sounds of those Romans sitting up those three crosses, that night, there's a lot of commotion in the jail. Unlike the previous nights, there's a lot of, a lot of activity, a lot of scurrying boots, a lot of voices as things are happening very strangely. Rest does not come. Finally, at dawn, he hears heavy footsteps. And finally, he hears that devastating sound of the crunch of a key in a lock. The key turns heavy latch, the door opens. The door swings open, heavy hands yank him up, and it drags him out. He's awaiting a scourging or a beating or humiliation or, or spitting or mocking or whatever it might be, but he's led out into a platform before a howling crowd, and he thinks, this is it. This is what I deserve. <laughs> he looks over, and he sees a man, but only a pile of putty, barely recognizable as a man. He hears the crowds chanting for the death of the other man. Give us Barabbas. Let Jesus be crucified. The crowd is clamoring for his own freedom. Suddenly his chains fall off and he is pushed forward to walk away from condemnation. Certainly he followed the crowd trying to figure out what's going on. How did this happen? I was condemned to die. It should have been me. Surely he follows the crowd and at some point is able to make his way to where he's actually able to lock eyes with this rabbi from Galilee. And he sees that this man is going to pay his price. Trying to make sense of it, perhaps as the nails were being driven into this other person, it finally dawned on him fully. It should have been me. That central cross was reserved for him. He was the chief of sinners. There would have been two others on either, one other on either side of him. But that central cross was going to be for him, and he knew it. And it should have been me. In that instant, five things became very clear, true, and apparent for Barabbas. And I believe that Matthew is inviting us in to 
experience to appropriate the same five key learnings from Barabbas, the son of the father. You might say it this way, Barabbas simply means you and me, human. Five quick things Barabbas knew in an instant that we should know. Barabbas knew he was guilty. He was a murdering insurrectionist. He was a thief. He was a rebel against Rome. He had violated the law of Rome. He had certainly violated the law of Torah, of his nation, of his people. He was guilty and he knew it. He was no longer trying to resist. He knew what he had done and he knew the penalty and the weight was on him as he contemplated his inevitability and his fate. Second thing, Barabbas knew that Jesus was not guilty. <laughs> Did you think about that? Barabbas was in Jerusalem. He, he, he had been all over the Israel countryside, leading raids and doing crimes. He had heard all the scuttlebutt about this rabbi from Galilee who did miracles, who walked on water, who calmed storms, who fed thousands from nothing, who would touch the unclean leper and make him clean, make him live, who never said a mumbling word when he was being scourged. He had heard all about this man. He knew that Abraham had sinned. He knew that Moses had sinned. He knew that David had sinned. He knew that he had sinned. But he had also known that this Jesus, this rabbi, ate with sinners, immersed himself in the unclean, and yet made those around him clean because he was the very definition and personification of clean. He was innocent, and Barabbas knew it. So, thirdly, Barabbas knew that Jesus was in his place, literally, legally, judicially, forensically. Seeing how Jesus had been scourged, beaten, and mocked, hated by all, there was no question that he was supposed to have been on that center cross. Others might question throughout human history whether or not Christ really died for them, not Barabbas. He knew. You see what Matthew's doing? Do you know that he really died for you? Do you know that you were guilty? Do you know that Jesus is innocent? Do you know that he is in your place? Fourth, Barabbas knew that he had not earned his own freedom. One moment he is bound in chains in a cell, guilty as sin, a murderer, a rebel, a traitor, completely bound and found guilty. The next, he was declared righteous. But he wasn't. But the one with authority, with power, declared him righteous. Do you see that? Barabbas knew that he was guilty. He knew that Jesus was not guilty. He knew that Jesus was in his place. He knew that he hadn't earned his own freedom. He was guilty, but he was declared righteous. Fifth, Barabbas knew that Jesus' death was sufficient. It was enough. He could never be tried again for those crimes. They were paid for. All we know is that Barabbas, in some of the different gospel accounts, was a murderer, probably was a sicarii, which means he had carried a little dagger, and he would run up and he would assassinate Roman soldiers. It's what they did to try to create terror all over Israel and the province of Judea. 
some Roman soldier who had been murdered, his brother could never come and exact vengeance because it was poured out on Jesus. He couldn't be tried twice. He could never demand justice or revenge. That penalty was paid. He had no argument for the fact, Barabbas, that he was alive and he should have been dead. And there was nothing Barabbas could add to the finished work of Jesus. It was finished. He was free. You know why I love the documentary of the Gospels? Because they're so brilliantly crafted. They're so brilliantly narrated. This documentarian that is Matthew, that is the Holy Spirit of God himself. You know what happens to Barabbas? Me neither. We're never, ever told. Because he's me. Because he's you. Barabbas is the encounterer, the observer, the watcher of this documentary. What will happen? We're left to wonder. We're left to place ourselves in his place because that's our story. This portion of Matthew's gospel isn't trying to prove to us that this actually had happened. Oh, it's true. And it's true whether or not a person believes it. It's truth. This portion of Matthew's gospel is telling us and it's trying to challenge and charge us and change us. Do we accept what Barabbas accepted? And if so, what will we do with this new life? See, we're gathered in these shadows. And the tendency we have in the 21st century is to look around at all the darkness, all the glum, all the gloom, all the shadows, and wag our finger. Somebody should do something. Somebody did. And it should have been me that was judged. See, there's God, and then there were people, but then there is sin, and so there is judgment. And for those who find that offensive, I want to reference a Polish theologian named Miroslav Wolf, who encountered all sorts of heinous, unspeakable atrocities in Eastern Europe in times of war. And he says, for those who think there should not be judgment and justice, you've probably never been the victim of a heinous crime, nor your wife, nor your daughter, nor your sister. Justice must be done because it is the heart and the character of God. There is God and there is people, but there is sin. And so there must be judgment. He cannot, he must not, he will not let bygones be bygones. That would effect to ungod God, the one thing that he cannot do. So while we look at the shadows, we must remember that we were conceived in iniquity. The judgment that was poured out should have been me. It should have been you. It should have been us. See, there is God. There is people. There is sin. And so there's judgment. Tonight, there's a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we get to consider and contemplate all that we deserve because we are the injustice and the sin and the rebellion and the sedition, the insurrection, the defiance against you and your kingdom and your righteousness. Left to our own devices, every thought, word, and deed we produce is against you.
And so your judgment poured out should have been on me, on us. And so this evening, Father, would you help us to consider the cross of Christ? We're at that seventh trial. Our Lord Jesus, our champion who was willing to die, our brother who was proud of us, our king who cares for us, was declared guilty, though innocent. And you poured out your unrestrained wrath upon him in our place. Our Father, it is right for us to worship the Son. You were pleased to crush him for our iniquity, sin, wickedness, and trespass. And by his stripes, we are healed. And so like Barabbas, in this documentary, Father, would you charge and challenge us? Would you change us to walk forth from this place? Loving Jesus, loving Jesus, and loving others. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.